This podcast is supported by the Center for Inclusive Growth, the philanthropic arm of MasterCard. The pandemic has accelerated the transition to a digital economy, widening disparities while also creating new avenues for inclusion. At the Center for Inclusive Growth, we're working to build a digital economy for all, tapping into MasterCard's core assets to develop actionable insights, innovative programs, and partnerships for social impact. Learn more and subscribe at MasterCardCenter.org. It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. What's the role of journalists today? Historically, their focus has been to shine a light in dark corners and hold the powerful to account. In the wake of America's racial reckoning, polarization, and the pandemic, journalistic norms like objectivity are being redefined. NPR released a controversial update to its ethics code that allows journalists to participate in demonstrations, which used to be prohibited. Eric Deggins is a journalist with NPR. What we were realizing is that we were seeing demonstrations and we were seeing public expression about issues that were about values that really shouldn't be that debatable. The idea that police brutality is wrong. The idea that discriminating against someone because of their race is wrong. These bedrock human values, he says, are reflected in NPR's coverage, so the organization's journalists should be allowed to advocate for them. Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from Aspen Community Program's McCloskey Speaker Series in collaboration with Aspen Digital. Many of journalism's norms are being upended in the United States, leading to drama in newsrooms. But Eric Deggins, a TV critic for NPR and author of Race Bader, How the Media Wields Dangerous Words to Divide a Nation, argues newsroom rules like neutrality are overstated. For years, journalists have been advocates for the status quo. We've seen newspapers come forward and apologize for how they covered the civil rights movement because they were advocates for the status quo and they marginalized civil rights advocates during times when, uh, you know, great press coverage would have had a great impact. Still, today's newsrooms are facing new challenges. Some journalists became oppositional to the White House after President Trump called the press the enemy of the people. Newsrooms, too, are encountering generational change and the Me Too movement. Deggins joins Joanne Littman, who served as editor-in-chief of USA Today, and Aspen Digital Executive Director Vivian Schiller for a conversation about the ethics of journalistic decision-making. They spoke in August. Schiller, who was president and CEO of NPR, starts the conversation. Okay, so I, I want to start with a question really to both of you, which is, you know, what are the biggest changes you've seen in, in the way the media reports on stories and presents stories to the audience um, in the last uh, few years. I'll, I'll start with you, Eric. Um, okay. Well, one of, one of the things that has uh, struck me about the Trump era is that journalists were dealing with an administration and then, uh, by extension, uh, a, a political party. Um, well, I, let, let's, just, let's just limit it to Trump. You're dealing with someone who was willing to lie from the very beginning. Um, We often, and and his base didn't really care that much that he was lying. 
Uh, often what traditional journalists will do is we'll take what a politician tells us, we'll test it, and then we'll do a story that will hopefully point out where that politician is either wrong or is lying, and then we, we trust the public to react to that. But what would happen is, you know, Trump would come out and say he had the biggest inaugural audience ever. And we would say, that's a lie. And his base would say, we don't care. <laughs> and, it, and, and, and it went from there, right? And so I think journalists had a tough time figuring out how do we, what's the rules of engagement now when you're dealing with someone uh, who doesn't pay a price for, for saying things that are demonstrably untrue again and again and again and again. And on top of that, um, particularly in the wake of George Floyd's death and the reckoning that we had over the summer, um, last summer, um, for civil rights, and then before that, the Me Too movement, um, you had a lot of turmoil inside newsrooms, where particularly I felt younger journalists were challenging us to live up to the ideals that we said we had about being fair uh, about uh, uh, sexism and about racism in our own newsrooms. And so we had to come to terms with how to deal with that while we were also coming to terms with this sort of historic presidency. And then you get the pandemic on top of that. It was, it was a lot, let's just say yeah. that. But I just want to follow up before I come to you, jo uh, uh, Joanne. Um, Eric, you know, I, kn I know that you, are, you, you, you're, you report for NPR. I realize you don't necessarily report on NPR, but, but, no. but let's talk about NPR for a minute because sure. I, I'm curious to see how you, you see this playing out in the coverage at NPR. You talk about the struggling with how to deal with, a, you know, with the president saying lies. I mean, I think a lot of news organizations struggled. It took them years to utter the L word. I mean, I can tell right. you, as a, as a journalist, it's, you, you, you know, you don't, you're uncomfortable with being <laughs> that right. direct. So I'm curious right. about that. And also, say a word about that. So NPR also just released a new ethics guide about how journalists, um, it has been, let me just give one piece of background. It is sort of, one of the traditions of journalism is that you, uh, you do not participate in causes because we're neutral and objective. Um, and that includes, you know, marches, famously, I've forgotten her name, the New York Times reporter years ago, uh, who reports on the uh, Supreme Court. She's long retired, marched in an anti-abortion march and, you know, all- Linda all, Greenhouse? Yeah, Linda, yeah, yeah. Linda Greenhouse, all-, yeah. all Heck broke loose. So, but now those rules are changing at NPR. So just talk about this, do you think? Sure. So the, you're right. There was a lot of discussion over when to use the word lie because you're implying intentionality, of course. Right. And, um, and, and, you know, I think one thing that we value at NPR um, is our status as an honest broker. We try really hard to be fair. And, and, so, and so I think... And, and I don't think we were alone in this. I think there were a lot of news organizations that wanted to be careful about using that word to make sure that we were being as fair as we could to the politicians we were covering and the situations that we were trying to describe. But at some point, you sort of realize when you're constantly being told things that are demonstrably untrue, at some point you have to use that word. Uh, and, and, at some, and, and we did decide that there were times when we needed to use that word. Um, so recently we had a situation where we looked over our ethics manual and we had some robust debate inside NPR about how to make it, um, how to update it for modern times. And what we were realizing is that we were seeing demonstrations and we were seeing public expression about issues that were about values that really shouldn't be that debatable. The idea that, um, you know, uh, police brutality is wrong. 
the idea that um, you know uh, discriminating against someone because of their race is wrong, or discriminating against someone because of their gender is wrong. These, these are sort of bedrock human values that we've always reflected in our coverage, and we felt um, that we had to articulate an ethics policy that would allow even reporters to say, uh, hey, if I want to take uh, part in, a, in a, uh, a protest that says that, that killing unarmed civilians is wrong, they should be able to do that. And so, um, you know, I even took a, a few notes on it. So um, it says that our new code says journalists may participate in activities that advocate for, quote, the freedom and dignity of human beings in social media and in real life. Um, and, and this is something that would normally happen after you have a conversation with your editor and with your superiors. Um, you wouldn't necessarily just run out and jump into a protest without having a discussion inside your newsroom if you were a journalist. But one thing we also did too was sort of say, if you're somebody who works in research or if you're somebody who does um, you know, prom promotions for NPR, you're a different kind of employee than if you're somebody who controls the content of our news coverage, so there's different rules for them too. We're trying to make it so that people can uh, be involved in, in their civic life and not totally give that up uh, just because they've uh, decided to become a professional journalist. I'm going to turn it to you, Joanne, but I will say that the response to, to many from, this, from the, your ethics guides and from these kind of rules from many traditional journalists is, is pretty negative. They don't feel that that should be allowed. So, um, Joanne, where did ta let's uh, talk about where do, where are you seeing some of the biggest changes? Sure, sure. So I would say over the past really five years, five to ten years, but really in the last five years, we've seen some really significant changes within the newsroom that affect the news that everybody here is seeing and hearing. And I would say there's a couple of those changes that frankly are really troubling to me. And there are some of these changes that I think are unbelievably positive. So I'll, I'll just walk you through both. I'll, we'll start with the bad news. Yeah. Some journalists, so we start with, <laughs> lead with the, if it bleeds, it leads. Um, so um, the, the troubling part, honestly, is what happened during the Trump administration where you had a president who was consistently labeling the press as the enemy of the people. Um, the press has traditionally, and this is the way I grew up and you grew up, we all grew up, um, you know, our, our role is to shine a light on, in dark corners, to hold the powerful to account, regardless of what their political party is. The concern I have is there was such a drumbeat of enemy of the people, and, and I don't know if you guys realize this, but when we sent reporters to Trump rallies, we had to get security for them because the rally goers were so, so vicious in attacking and being encouraged to attack the press. Um, so um, my concern is that what happened was a lot of our um, mainstream major media organizations really internalized being the enemy of the people and they became, instead of being shining light in dark corners, they became the opposition. And I feel like there was a lot of conversations within newsrooms, and frankly, I saw this within the New York Times, within CNN, um, where uh, you could almost hear the conversation among people saying, like, this guy is Hitler, and we do not want to be on the wrong side of history. And it translated into if, you know, headlines and coverage and, and how coverage was played. And um, I think it's really hard to walk back. Once you become partisan, 
it's very, very hard to walk back from that. And that is a, a, a serious concern um, that I have on that front. Um, and then the other concern, frankly, is local journalism. So at, at Gannett, when I was at Gannett, um, I oversaw all of our local papers, over 110 local newspapers, um, and I saw firsthand what was happening, and it was devastating, devastating how the, the, um, the newspapers were drying up, how the staffs were constantly being um, cut and cut and cut again. Um, and the local newspapers really are, uh, like Liz Cheney was talking about how important it is the local officials are so important. Well, the local newspapers are unbelievably important in upholding our democracy at that local level and beyond, and they are just being decimated. Those are two very concerning trends. I want to just talk about the positive for a second, though. Um, one of the best, greatest, most positive things that we have seen in the last few years has been um, what's going on in who's coming into the newsroom. So I, I started my career at the Wall Street Journal in the 80s, and I swear to God, there were so few women on the staff that there was no ladies' room on the newsroom floor. We had to run up to where the, recept the lady receptionists were to use the tiny little guest bathroom. Lady receptionist. <laughs> and um, so, so uh, if you look at what's happened, um, the numbers are still not great. There actually was um, uh, the, the, the default position of news organizations for the past number of years it really has been sort of the white male view. And um, you can see that even in the last couple of years, there's been surveys. Uh, there was one that was done of every English language um, uh, website. It was a global um, survey, English language websites, and it found that more than 75% of everybody written about, quoted, was male. And in fact, it found that there were, females were so um, so poorly represented, it said that women are being symbolically annihilated. That's a quote, symbolically annihilated by the news industry. And, and again, if you look at, you know, women are the majority of college grads, but also the majority of communications journalism grads. But if you look in the newsroom, who gets the bylines? More than 60% of the bylines are male. The majority of the newsroom leadership is male. Um, and the majority is white. Um, but. The positive is, in the past few years, we have seen like a real, real change as many more uh, women, people of color, LGBTQ, people of all kind of different backgrounds are coming in and are being wooed into newsrooms. And that has a huge impact on what we see. The, the only reason where we know about Me Too, that Me Too coverage, is because we now have women who are writing about these issues. Um, you know, uh, I want to say maybe about a decade ago, I wrote an op-ed for the New York Times about how women's gains were backsliding. And it was a purely reported piece on how women's gains in Congress and in corporate America and in law were backsliding. It was all about the numbers, but the reason that I wrote it is because the New York Times wasn't covering it. They had no reporters who were covering this. So it ran as an op-ed, because I didn't work there. And, um, but, but fast forward a decade, and now they have an entire section that's dedicated to writing about the issues affecting women. They have uh, reporters who are focused on issues of race and ethnicity. Um, you know, you just need to look at the 1619 Project, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who did this remarkable work um, in the last couple of years uh, that we never would have seen in previous years because of the composition of the newsroom. So that's a real plus 
going forward. Um, so coming back to the negatives, sorry. Because <laughs> um, you're also a journalist. I'm also a journalist. <laughs> so coming back to your negatives about, you know, the, are, are news organizations becoming activists in some way? Let, let, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, how is that... You know, my questions are, uh, legitimately, how much of this, is, is this generational? Is it, um, is it uh, based on commercial demands from the audience? Is it, what, 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 what is causing this, really? And, and I think a lot of news organizations are, you know, scared of this proposition. I mean, Dean Baquet, the editor-in-chief of the New York Times, you know, he went on the record saying, we get a lot of pressure from our readers to be, you know, you know, now, you know, anti-Trump and boosters for the Biden administration. And he's like, we're not boosters for anyone. You know, we're, we report, we report. Okay. So first of all, there's a huge generational divide, yeah. um, I think in society, but in newsrooms, it's really playing out with younger people who want to bring their true selves to work and be able to express themselves on Twitter and social media is a huge I'll piece of this, that. huge yeah. use. Um, versus the, the standard bearers, people who came up as we came up, um, who were more um, uh, likely to say, yeah, we, we, you know, that's not what we do here at work. We're, again, you know, we're focused on the shining the light in dark corners. We hold the powerful to account. We're not activists. We are here to cover and to shine a light. Um, but the, the, it was a really interesting, it was, I have to say, the first time that I saw it, um, that, that it really hit home for me was on election night in 2016. So I was in the newsroom in USA Today and everyone was expecting Hillary to win. And um, when things started to turn, it was a surprise win for Trump, um, you know, my role and the role of the editors there was to erase our whiteboard full of stories yeah. and start from scratch. Like, what are we covering? What are we covering? Like, how are we going to redo this? And it's a, it's a very, very, very frenetic, focused kind of work that you're doing at that moment. But I look over at, um, we had a lot of young, particularly young women who were kind of manning the news desk and they were crying. Yeah. And I swear, I felt like Tom Hanks saying, there is no crying in journalism. Yeah. It's not what we do. Um, but that it really struck me, that generational divide at that moment. But isn't this also everybody's worst nightmare about the media, that it's, it's, you know, it's full of liberals? Well, well he, he, yeah. I got to speak up. <laughs> because I feel like traditional journalists have fooled themselves into saying that they don't take sides or that they don't have values or that they're not advocates when it's not true. Traditional journalists have been advocates for the status quo for years. And in fact, we've seen newspapers come forward and apologize for how they covered the civil rights movement because they were advocates for the status quo and they marginalized civil rights advocates during times when uh, you know, great press coverage would have had a great impact. So I think we're, we're fooling ourselves when we say, these young kids, they want to be activists and we're the ones who are not. That's not true. What the young kids are saying, and I agree with them uh, often, is that we are taking stands and pretending that we're not. And it's time to stop doing that. It's time to stop uh, pretending that we're not seeing a, a crisis in our, in, our, in our cities where people of color are being over-policed, and it's time to challenge 
um, our habit of taking what police tell us and what government tells us and accepting it. And, and challenge, we need to challenge it more. And we need to challenge all these conventions that we have about, about policing, all these conventions that we have about whether or not systemic racism exists and how it impacts people, um, whether or not systemic sexism exists and how it affects women in the workplace and in life. I think that's what they're talking about. These young journalists are smart and sharp, and they are challenging us to live up to the values we say we stand for as journalists. And I, I think we, I saw it in NPR's newsroom. Uh, so so I, I don't think it's as simple as, you know, they want to say things on social media that we normally wouldn't say. They're challenging us uh, to, to face the implications of trying to pretend that we're objective when objectivity, true objectivity, is impossible. Is there a limit to what journalists should be able to advocate for sure. appropriately? So sure. where, where's, the, where's the line? Okay, so I'm an, I've been an opinion journalist for a long time. Yeah. Uh, so I've been used to being able to say what I think more than traditional journalists. But one place where I draw the line is I don't give political contributions. I don't put uh, political signs in my yard or on my car. Um, I don't advocate for specific um, politicians. Um, I feel like I get to have my say in other ways. Uh, and, it might, and it would be crossing the line to join the team of a specific um, politician. I vote, though. And I think, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll do respect to Lynn Downey. I think he's an amazing journalist. But I think this idea of not voting. Lynn Downey to, was the uh, editor-in-chief, of course, of the Washington Post, who famously, who famously talked about not yeah. voting. And, I, and, you know, not voting means you're not exercising your voice. And for me, as a black person to not vote, after so many people fought and died for me to have that right, I'm not giving that up. I don't care what I do for a living. Uh, but I, I can be fair. The whole idea is that you're supposed to be fair. You know? and, and, and all of this performative stuff that we often do as mainstream journalists to try and prove that we're being fair, I think uh, sometimes puts us in a box. And what we really need to do is make sure we're actually being fair. I agree on the point of um, uh, partisan politics is sort of the line in the sand, right? That's where um, uh, I think it's very hard, uh, and pretty much every newsroom says you shouldn't be um, out there campaigning on behalf of a candidate. Um, I don't give political contributions. Most of the newsrooms I've been in, there is a rule prohibiting political contributions, but allowing you to do things like run for the school board. Um, so I think that that... that uh, that is fair. I do think that, and there are basic human rights. Um, the issues that have been uh, covered now in, in the newsroom, racism, sexism, um, uh, all of the, 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 these are sort of human issues as opposed to political issues. So I think I put that in a, in a different camp. I mean, the, I consider myself um, sort of a mainstream journalist, but the, you know the book that my 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 uh, most recent book—that's what she said—is about closing the gender gap. I, I don't view that as a partisan issue. It's sort of a human rights issue. Yeah, I've I've, I've said I said in my book, as a matter of fact, um, that you know journalists have often taken these stands. You know, we're the voice of the voiceless, or we try to be a watchdog on big government or big institutions. We try to advocate for equality in civic life. And, and for some, to some people, that can feel like a, like a liberal value. Some of those things have been turned into partisan 
talking points. This whole idea about whether or not systemic racism exists in society, the mainstream press has mostly decided that it does. And, and, and we're constantly covering how it affects people's lives. But there's a whole political debate going on out there where there's a whole bunch of people who say that that's a liberal ideal. It's not. But some people perceive it that way. And, and, and so, again, part of the struggle is to separate there. I mean, I do think that mainstream journalism does have some problems with being overly uh, stocked with people who would call themselves liberals. But the way people criticize it sometimes, we're standing up for human values. We're not standing up for quote-unquote liberal or leftist values. This podcast is supported by the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth. The shift from an analog to a digital economy has spurred progress and growth over the last 30 years. Since the start of the pandemic, digital connections have provided a critical lifeline to keep societies functioning. However, far too many people are still not fully benefiting from technological progress. There's a clear imperative. We need to do more than just build back better. We must rebuild for all. That's why we joined forces with the Aspen Institute to host the Global Inclusive Growth Summit earlier this month. More than 50 speakers, including U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris, former President Bill Clinton, and the World Trade Organization's Ngozi Okonjo-Iweala, joined us to shine a spotlight on the innovative ideas, solutions, and partnerships that are needed now to rebuild an economy that works for everyone, everywhere. Watch on demand at globalinclusivegrowthsummit.com. So for a whole bunch of reasons, um, you know, trust in the mainstream media is at, is at a record low, unfortunately. And that's particularly true amongst people who identify, who would, who self-identify in polls as conservative. Um, and, uh, and there is, uh, you know, a, a probably a movement away from some of the, what we would, cons- you know, what we're talking, the kinds of news organizations we're talking about. And when I'm talking about conservatives, I'm talking about the Liz Cheney's of the world. I'm not talking about my pillow guy, <laughs> just to be really clear. Sure. So, you know, and I mean, is that a, I mean, here we are, um, at a time when information about, you know, the, 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 about the spread of the, the Delta variant, vaccination, you know, various rules about vac- vaccination and, and masking, information about, you know, the election, all of that is, I mean, these are issues that are critical to public health and democracy. So how do we... How do we get, I'm using Liz Cheney as a metaphor, I don't mean her literally, but, you know, people that, that share her, you know, that are conservative but live in the real world like Liz Cheney does, and, um, but have completely different views from, from liberals. How do we make sure that uh, they are part of the audience and watching and not, and not alienated? Is that, is that possible? I, I actually do believe it's possible. Um, USA Today is actually a purple publication in terms of readership. It's, it's half red, half blue. 
I found it incredibly useful. So, so those of us who you know, mostly have worked in national publications, and before I went to Gannett, which has all these local publications, I, had only, I was at the Wall Street Journal, I was Condé Nast, I never worked in, in the local media. Um, but you realize, first of all, that um, you do have to think about how you're covering things. I, I remember um, there was a, a, a moment when um, some Trump budget um, uh, information came out, and there were, I think it was a cut to NPR, there were cuts to some like favorite liberal organizations. And I remember at a news meeting within USA Today, and, and a couple of people started saying, oh my God, we gotta write about, like they're cutting NPR. And I had a, an editor there who had come from the Arizona Republic, a deep red publication, and the editor said, whoa, 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 there's actually some elements in this budget that are gonna be really, really helpful to red states, and they're gonna really embrace this, and we shouldn't ignore that either. I, I think we need those voices in the, in the newsroom. I think one of the, one of the best way, things we can do is to make sure that we have diversity, not just of gender, race, ethnicity, but diversity of opinion and diversity of background. I mean, it's, I think it's you know, diversity of ages, yes, but also like bring in people who you know, didn't grow up sort of in a, some upper middle class suburb on one of the coasts and, and get other perspectives. But, but I, I also think that one of the biggest challenges that mainstream media faces now is that there is an entirely separate media structure that is focused on uh, supporting conservative ideas and politicians that um, is filled with misinformation and disinformation and is often focused on undermining mainstream news outlets. And, and that's one of our biggest problems. That's why we're having such a hard time getting people vaccinated. That's why we're having such a hard time getting certain segments of the country to admit that Joe Biden was fairly elected president. This is a serious problem. And um, how, do you, how do you get conservatives engaged? You try to present coverage that doesn't belittle their point of view. Um, their, you know, every, everyone has an identity um, that, they're, that they're proud of and that they're invested in. And, you know, their values kind of flow from that. And so if you're going to challenge that, you want to do it in a way that's respectful of where they're coming from and that understands that these are complex issues that we're talking about and we can agree to disagree sometimes. I think sometimes some of this coverage is so dismissive of certain kinds of people that it becomes personally insulting and it becomes hard to have that dialogue. But we also have to recognize that there's this whole media structure out there that profits from this division and that is devoted to delegitimizing mainstream media in serious ways. And how do we get past that? That's the big question. So that brings up, obviously, social media. Because that, that, that social media, I think, has been one of the biggest destabilizing forces. Um, and, and this is something, you know, there, there's been a, now, at this point, we have a ton of research on how information spreads. And we know that um, the emotion that spreads fastest is outrage. And there's also been research on um, fake news, you know, um, pretend whatever, made up news versus uh, legit news. And it found that fake news, totally invented stuff, travels something like 11 times faster, spreads that much more quickly. 
The problem is if you look at sort of Facebook and the other social media platforms, they prioritize, their entire business model is built on having us share information. The more we share, uh, the more money they make, the more that they can sell ads against, the more information they get about us. Um, so that's their entire business model, which means that we are all being incentivized essentially to share uh, information that may be false and that just makes us all angry. So we're now in this sort of ecosystem where you've got the conservative media, but then you've also got this unbelievable amplification, even for people who never watch TV. I want to push back on the notion that you just said conservative media, because I think there is, you know, my question is, I think many liberals would consider what were the kinds of news organizations we're calling mainstream media as liberal organizations. They may quibble and wish they were a little more extreme, but I think liberals might claim, you know, as their own, <laughs> the New York Times and CNN and MSNBC. Um, you know, there is certainly a loud and uh, uh, boisterous uh, set of media that claims to be conservative but is not necessarily rooted in evidence-based reality, is there not a gap in the marketplace for conservative media for, you know, there are some wonderful organizations, but they're not very big. The Bulwark, the Dispatch, I mean, these are wonderful online publications that come from a conservative perspective that are very much uh, rooted in the, <laughs> the reality-based world. Why is there no, why is there no successful sort of media from a conservative sort of viewpoint? Well, I mean, there's lots of successful conservative media. It's just the conservative base has insisted on a, a level of fealty to certain ideas. You know, if, if you're a conservative publication and you won't say that uh, Joe Biden was unfairly elected president, that the, the election was stolen from Trump, how much traction are you going to get with the core conservative base? You know, they are insisting on a fealty to ideas that are not rooted in, in fact, that if you're going to be a responsible news organization, you can't really do. We're, we're seeing Fox News tie itself in knots because there are parts of Fox News that try to re report on fact. And then there are parts of Fox News that are devoted to this ideology and that are constantly saying things that aren't true. And, and, and so um, one of the things that we should talk about, for example, is, is conflict. Because it's not just about anger, it's about conflict. And when you look at cable television news, that's where uh, they draw an audience and they keep that audience engaged on that platform for hours, conflict. So even when you're watching CNN, which is fact-based, they're presenting the information in a way that's conflict-based. Because, it, because it's harder to get somebody to watch an hour of news if it's, here's a report from Bangladesh, and here's a report from Chicago, and here's a report from Japan. But if you say, here's a report on the biggest news story of the day, now we're going to bring on a panel of people to argue about it. And then here's a, here's a report on the second biggest story, then we're going to bring on another panel of people to argue about it. You see, that holds the audience's attention more. And, and so we're not just seeing stuff that's based on promote, provoking anger, it's, it's based on conflict. And, and because we had a president in Trump who was constantly making news, and, and then we were in the middle of a pandemic, people were constantly watching 
you know, binge watching these cable news outlets and, and you could feel it yourself, I bet. You were getting agitated watching this stuff. You know, you watch an hour of cable news no matter what it is and you come away from it feeling worse about the world and you're, and you're more agitated because that's the formula that they use to keep you engaged. And so that's some of the stuff we got to talk about, too. I think you're bringing up such a great point, which is there's a bigger point here, which actually I think one of the biggest issues we have with the news industry is that it has become all politics. Conflict, yes, but politics and conflict. It's become tribal and it's all about politics. I mean, if we think 10, 15, 20 years ago, news was, it was, what's happening in Bangladesh? What's going on in the Middle East? What's happening with oil prices? You know, we had like a whole array of other topics that we covered. And one of the, um, the real issues I think that we have with this country and with the, with the news media is we are so focused on politics and so focused on the push-pull and the gamesmanship and the polarization uh, that it actually squeezes out really, really important other topics that we should be uh, paying attention to that we are not. And there's a lot that's going on in the world that um, uh, is getting, getting short shrift, and it is to the detriment of all of us. But yeah. well, when you talk about social media, you know, one of the ways, of course, that you prosper on social media is by presenting information that draws the most eyeballs, that draws the most attention. And so that's a, lim that's a short list of, of subjects. And, and, and cable TV news found out that, you know, the, the way to hold an audience is to find the four or five or six stories that people are most interested in and to keep talking about those stories. And, and in a way, social media kind of does the same thing. So, it, you know, we, we have this revenue and success structure set up that rewards focusing on a small range of stories. And, and, and how do we break out of that? You know, it reminds me of um, a quote from uh, then chairman of uh, CBS after uh, about a year into the Trump administration, um, Les Moonves, who said, yep. he may not be good for the country, but he's damn good for CBS News. So, you know, and this is the reality. He, he ended up, he's gone now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Speaking yeah. of me too. Yeah, speaking of me yeah. too. Yeah. So I'm gonna ask you one more question and then we're gonna turn to your question. So please um, get them ready. So um, there's a, to my mind, a really excellent uh, media commentator, he's uh, an academic named Jay Rosen um, it, at NYU New York, who, who focuses a lot on these issues. And he writes, uh, this is a question about leadership. He writes, it will have to, uh, he's talking about where, what, what do news organizations need to do in the new area? He and he goes, it, it, by here, I think he's referring to the mainstream media, will have to find a way to become pro-truth, pro-voting, anti-racist, and aggressively pro-democracy. It will have to cast its lot with those in both parties who are reality-based. It will have to learn to distinguish bad actors with propagandistic intent from normal speakers making their case. The American press will need new leadership. Is today's leadership up to the task? So I'm gonna turn Jay's question to you. Is today's leadership, news leadership, up to the task? Well, leadership has actually had a lot of turnover yeah. recently. <laughs> as, of, um, as of right now, if you look at the top 20 newspapers in the country, the 20 largest, more than half are led by a woman or person of color. That is for the first time yeah. ever. At the same time, I do think that our existing leadership 
Um, you know, th th it's been a learning curve. I mean, look at, um, you know, a couple of examples. Uh, one was um, at the Washington Post, where, where Marty Baron, who is a revered and brilliant editor, um, but it got into a controversy with a, a woman, a reporter, female reporter, who had been sexually assaulted in her past, had spoken out about it, and he would not allow her to cover anything having to do with Me Too. Uh, which I thought was a completely wrong way to go. But again, this is our, you know, sort of established leadership who we're sort of having trouble with. I, to me, that made absolutely no sense. It's sort of like saying that um, a black person who has experienced racism isn't allowed to cover racism. Uh, so, Which has also been said. <laughs> right. It's nuts. It's absolutely nuts. The other issue that we've seen um, that a lot of leadership is having trouble with is um, people's previous social media presence. Oh. So there was a situation uh, very recently where a young woman was hired by the AP and within a week was fired. It's, AP was not clear about it, but it appears that she was fired for tweets that she made that were pro-Palestinian tweets when she was in college. Now she's still young, so it was only a few years ago. But you know, that, it wasn't in the, from what I understand, it was not in the they, course of they, her job. They claim, they claim that they, it was not they, that. that she, they say that, it was within the job, but yeah, they, they did they not say, tell they us say it was. Within it was. The job. What I always tell um, other journalists when I'm talking about social media, it's not fair, but the golden rule is thou shalt not embarrass thy employer. That's really the bottom line. Yeah. And there's so many, you know, these news organizations have such vague rules about social media, because that's the bottom line. That's all they care about. If, you, if, if there are tweets out there that embarrass them, that's when they bring the hammer down. And, uh, and it's, it's unfair. And one of the things we try to do when, when we looked at our um, ethics rules at NPR was get some more clarity on social media use as well for the protection of the employees. Yeah. But there was one other situation, again, where this was the new editor of Teen Vogue was brought in, and um, she, again, a young woman, still in her 20s, and somebody unearthed tweets she made in college, and she's, she's a person of color, but she had made some tweets that were, I guess she had, done, she had tweeted something that, that appeared to be like an Asian slur right. uh, when she was in college, and she lost the job before she even started. I, I do think, you know, in, in this day and age, we, we have to sort of understand that there's a lot of people who did really stupid things in college. Probably, I mean, I can't speak for all of you, but I can speak for myself, and I know that if there were social media back then, I wouldn't be sitting up here today. That's all I can say. Yes, thank God. Thank God there was no Twitter when I was in college. Yeah. So, so, all right, we, we, want to, we want to take your questions. I'm just going to say while we're coming to the microphone, you know, one of the, one of the, the sort of hallmarks of journalism I think is still true is that you, if you work for the New York Times or USA Today, you 24/7 you represent that publication. When you leave the office and you go home, you still represent that publication. When you're tweeting, you still represent that publication. Yeah. And um, you know, that's I think a lot of the issues I think where people get in trouble is a disconnect on that point. Okay, there's a uh, right over here. Yes, thank you, Eric. I have a question for you. Um, over the last one, two, three months. Um, Twice I heard uh, pieces on NPR um, that uh, the, the subject was uh, uh, the shortage of uh, workforce uh, in the USA. Um, each time, uh, different factors were discussed. Um, one uh, were um, people uh, 
didn't want to leave the house and come back and perhaps transmit COVID to their younger children because uh, perhaps the same issue with their, their elderly moms and dads. Also, um, another good example is, is lack of childcare available. Um, in each piece, though, um, what was not mentioned is um, people's disincentive to work uh, because of the significant amount of government handouts right now. Do you think that's a fair presentation of the facts? Given that I'm not a labor reporter, I couldn't tell you. Yeah. Um, uh, I do know that we try very hard, like I said, to be an honest broker and talk about um, all sides of an issue. So if it wasn't mentioned in the story, it's very possible that the reporter looked into it and decided that wasn't a factor. Okay, quick, let's go to this side, just up, up front here. Thank you. Um, yeah, yeah, here comes the mic. My name's Taddy Gottner, and I love the term recovering um, journalist. Yeah. I am as well. Um, worked for national business publications like the Wall Street Journal for 20 years. Is there a 12-step program? Oh, yeah. my God. I, you know what? But the truth is, once a journalist, always yeah. a journalist. Yeah, right. I see the world in stories. The thing that I've wanted to discuss with other journalists, and I'm glad you're here. To, you're, you're at my mercy. Um, so I was classically trained at Medill Northwestern, and we were trained to be the fourth estate, right? Shine the light in dark corners. With everybody in their own media echo chamber, and you touched on it a little bit, but how might we reimagine journalism so that, or the fourth estate, in a way that everybody's included, so that we're not seen as the liberal or the conservative. I mean, the Wall Street Journal has a conservative bent, right? Wall Street, you know, the New York Times, liberal. But how might we, and is it possible, and I know there's the Ford Foundation and ProPublica, you know, the paid private foundations trying to illuminate this issue, but I would love your opinion, and I open it up to both of you um, and to you as well. Thank you. That is a great question. I think that we do need to get back to a place where we can agree on facts. And until we can get to that place as a country, I don't see how we can get to a place. I mean, we've got to be able to look at what is right in front of our eyes on January 6th that is being shown to us in real time and all agree that what is happening is what is happening. And uh, I, the one thing that gives me hope, I will tell you, is that these things tend to be cyclical in history. Um, you know, if you go back to the late 19th century, early 20th century, yellow journalism, it, there is a real parallel to now. Yellow journalism was all about getting the most eyeballs, it, then it was with the penny newspapers, um, and it was ginning up a lot of controversy, and it was ginning up a lot of hate. Um, and it wasn't until it really led to some real unrest. I think there were a couple of columnists who actually called for assassinating McKinley. Um, and it was only after that that the newspapers and the rest of the country were like, okay, this is not, this is not entertainment anymore. This is something that we all need to come together. And the only other thing I can think about, and you, you never want to go to a war, but that's like, that's what... That, that's pre what has gotten us out of previous periods like this, where we're all together because we are focused against a common enemy. Well, but that's the thing that's so odd about where we are now. Like the pandemic sh ideally should have been that uniting uh, factor, but because there was a political dimension to it uh, for the president who was in the White House at the time, 
it was turned into a partisan issue. So um, my concern is that any kind of challenge that we would face that would normally unite us would suddenly be turned into a partisan issue um, by people who would profit from that kind of um, turn. I, I, I think one thing we, we have to get away from is thinking of the media as only <laughs> these major institutions yeah, that we're true. talking about. Uh, because there's so much media out there, there's podcasts, there's um, online-only outlets, um, there's uh, lots of smaller newspapers, there's a lot more media outlets out there and a, and a much wider array of ideas than I think uh, we realize. And I know myself, whoops, as a journalist, I'm always trying to figure out how to get into somebody else's media ecosystem and have them maybe think about including me in their media diet. So I'm always trying to figure out how can I, how can I talk about this in a way that might intrigue someone who wouldn't normally listen to me. And I think that's, we're, we're all doing that, man. We're all thinking about that 24 seven. Fair, uh, fair point about the range of media. Let's come over to this side um, over here in the front. There was a time in this country when we had three networks and CBS had Walter Cronkite. Lyndon Johnson said, if I lose Cronkite, I lose the war. Cronkite was, I think, the most trusted man in America by all of the surveys. And he brought the country together. I don't see that happening ever again because we have so much, just as you were talking about, Eric, so much division uh, of media. Is it likely that the divisiveness we see in this country and in the Congress has any chance of coming together without a media personality that can pull it together? The problem with the Cronkite era is that people like me didn't work in any of those newsrooms. And our perspective was rarely reflected. Um, so I think, you know, I always like to, uh, to, to quote my favorite philosopher, who is um, Spider-Man. It's actually Spider-Man's <laughs> Uncle Ben. Right? And he used to say, uh, he, he said in the comic books, right before he got killed, he told Peter Parker, with great power comes great responsibility. You as media consumers have never had more power. You have never had more power than you have now. If you see something on television or something that we do that you don't like, you can talk about it on Twitter. It can become a major idea. You know, hundreds of thousands of people can link to that idea from across the world. And the next thing you know, you know, the people who run NPR or run the New York Times or run NBC have to pay attention to what you said. But with that power, comes responsibility. So yeah, there's a lot of different ideas out there. There's a lot of different uh, reporting. There's a lot of conflict. Uh, part of this is kind of on you as an audience to make sure that you're rejecting misinformation and disinformation, even when it's telling you what you want to hear. Even when it's telling you what you want to hear. Reject it. And, and, and support those kinds of media outlets and reporting that seems to support the ideas of democracy and the ideas of fact-based journalism and the, all these ideas that we talk about as journalists all the time. Um, I think what's happened is that the power has gone from Walter Cronkite to you. And now, what are you gonna do with it? Okay, question uh, in the back. Eric, you mentioned about a breakout and the news is so focused political news is the hour of the day. How does 
that become more of a worldview of what's going on around the world versus what's going on in today's news bite. So I'm trying to give it back. I know you're trying to give the power to us. I'm trying to give you some more power. <laughs> right, right, right. Thank you. Well, I think, you know, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to be a homer, but I, you know, I think NPR does a really good job of trying to talk about things outside of that paradigm, even when we know the stories aren't necessarily going to be, you know, they're not going to get the highest page views on the website or, you know, you might not get the most listeners, but it's just part of us being able to come back to you and say, look, we're giving you a, a well-rounded view of the world. I think the PBS NewsHour does a great job um, at, at that. Um, you know, I think if you were to pick up an edition of the Wall Street Journal, you would, you would get a well-rounded view. There's, there's a lot of news outlets that are, that are trying hard to, to, to get outside of that political paradigm. But, but, you know, we all have our masters, and, you know, if politics is what everybody's focused on, then we wind up having to focus on it because that's what everybody wants to know about. Um, I do think that having a more traditional president has helped us move away from politics a little bit. Uh, you know, the, the struggle over the pandemic and the struggle over figuring out what happened um, on, on January 6th, um, that's still going to consume a lot of, of news hole. But, um, but I do feel like in the Biden administration, at least we've been able to, uh, you know, he's not making news like every second on Twitter the way that, that, that Trump used to. And so we can pull back a little bit from that political coverage that we used to be so addicted to. I don't know. What do you think? Um, I think on your Twitter point, the, the, I, I think that um, journalists, sometimes I think the only people on Twitter are journalists. And I do think there is an echo chamber on Twitter of journalists reading and retweeting each other. And it does lead to, um, we used to have this problem, in, honestly, in Washington and in Hollywood. We, both of them had problems of sort of inside the beltway or you know, inside the Hollywood machine where you're just too close. Like you're always with your sources and you're going to cocktail parties with your sources and there's all sorts of trading for access and there's all kinds of stuff going on. And, uh, and now all of journalism, in a sense, has almost become that way because everybody's on Twitter. Like, you know, what's Eric talking about? Well, I better talk about it too. Yeah. And, uh, and I don't think that that's very healthy. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting point. Um, let's, right over here. Thank you, guys. Um, I work in community news, and I write the check for our libel insurance. And it seems like we are held to higher count and higher standards than any of the journalists or opinion journalists on Fox, CNBC, CNN. I mean, Cuomo is not a journalist. You know, there's very few journalists that are actually hosting these late night shows. How can they get away with lying? I mean, again, I get threatened with libel all the time. And second question is Substack. Like, all, the, what's, what's going to be the, the implication of all these journalists going away from their editors and going away from these parent companies and publishing on their own with no one to edit their work. And I think the journalists are also facing this, like, I'm going to be independent vibe, and they're putting out stuff without a second set of eyes on. I think that's going to create a real issue, too. So, so what's interesting, what's funny, is our, our media correspondent, David Folkenflik, did a story about a lawsuit against Fox for something that Tucker Carlson said. And Fox's defense is, basically, you can't believe what he's saying. Yeah. You, you, yeah. Be, you, you can't believe that that was rooted in fact. That was their defense. So, so um, part of the problem is they, they, have, they are willing to spend the money to defend these people when they do get sued. 
I mean, you're in a position where you don't even want to get sued. Like you don't even want to have to deal with that expense. They, for them, it's the cost of doing business, right? So, um, so again, you know, it's, it's kind of up to the audience to reject the people who are not based in fact because the legal system is not going to um, do it for you. As far as Substack, he was taught Substack, if you don't know, is um, um, star journalists are deciding to leave the platforms that they work at and create their own online areas where they do work and you can pay a subscription fee and then you get to um, you know, absorb their, their brilliance. Uh, but they're, they're, working, uh, they're working on their own. And, um, and you know, on the one hand, I can see why superstar journalists would sort of feel like they're hemmed in by some of the restrictions that they're asked to hear you to, and they can't earn uh, the amount of money that maybe they, they could earn if they went out on their own because their brand is so powerful, they're so well-known. And they've decided, you know, for, for most of us, you know, for me, the NPR brand is much stronger than my personal brand. But, you know, if you were somebody who was, had a brand that was as strong as NPR, you might want to strike out on your own and, and, and earn your own money. You know, have your brand earn your own money. So, there, you know, uh, I just think as a consumer, you have to understand this person is outside of the confines of the organization where they worked before. They don't have the kind of editing that they had before. And, and maybe the product you're getting would be different. The overarching issue really here is the difference between news and commentary. So the people who are on Substack can say anything they want and, and they can have an opinion. Um, and people who are on cable news um, in the evenings, uh, are, are uh, most of them are doing commentary, uh, so they're not held to the same standard. The problem really is that for the vast majority of the news consumer, we can't tell the difference. Most people can't tell the difference between news and commentary, and it's all um, bollocked up when it's all um, uh, then communicated and shared through social media channels because there's no sort of marking that tells you that you're on the op-ed page versus the news page. Like, we used to actually know where we were, and now it's sort of all We, we do do that, equally. though. At NPR, we try really hard to label what's opinion and what's not for exactly that reason. Yeah. No. <laughs> um, I'm afraid we are out of time. My only commentary I want to add about Substack is no matter what they think, everybody needs an editor. Yes. <laughs> yes. I want to uh, thank Eric, I want to thank Joanne, and thank all of you for your attention, and we'll see you soon. Journalist Joanne Littman is the winner of six Pulitzer Prizes. She lectures at Yale about the intersection of media and democracy. Eric Deggins is a TV critic for NPR. Previously, he was a TV and media critic for the Tampa Bay Times. Vivian Schiller is executive director of Aspen Digital. She also served as global chair of news at Twitter and general manager of nytimes.com. Their conversation was held in August as part of the McCloskey Speaker Series held by Aspen Community Programs in partnership with Aspen Digital. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you're listening. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was programmed by Aspen Community Programs and Aspen Digital and produced by Marcy Krivenin and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.
This podcast is supported by the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth. Philanthropy alone can't fix poverty. The problems of the world are just too big for any one sector or industry to solve alone. At the Center for Inclusive Growth, we're committed to building partnerships that combine the strengths of business, government, and nonprofits to scale sustainable, equitable, and inclusive economic growth. To learn more, subscribe at mastercardcenter.org.